NASM's new subscription service, NASM Connected, is the best value in fitness. When you sign up, you'll get access to everything you'll need to expand your career, master new disciplines, and stay up to date with your certification in one great package. Gain instant access to over 350 online fitness courses available anywhere, anytime, on any device. Earn CEUs for dozens of approved providers. Plus, unlock articles, webinars, videos, and podcasts from the biggest names in fitness. Don't wait. Sign up today and unlock the best content in fitness at the best price. Get connected at nasm.org slash connected or call 1-800-460-460. 6276. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to NASM Master Instructor Roundtable Live. My name is Prentice, and as always, we're here with Wendy and Marty. How are you doing today? Great. How are you? All right. Great doing well. Nice. Fresh off of Optima, as is everyone else. And yes. I'm excited to get started. And as always, we have the man uh, behind the scenes making sure everything runs smoothly, Greg. And uh, Greg, I can uh, visualize him now uh, doing a salute. So thank you, Greg, for uh, getting us together, keeping this whole thing running. So as promised, uh, before our little hiatus, we were going to talk about part two of glute training. So what I want to know, what I want to know from both of you is how are you going to get my form and function equal, equitable with my glutes? How are we going to do that today, Wendy? Well, it's always based off your assessment, Princess. So um, <laughs> we would look at everything as a whole to realign you the way that you were supposed to move. And then, as always, we look at the five kinetic chain checkpoints and make sure the right thing is firing at the right time the way that it's it's supposed to fire. Okay, and I just want to know before we get uh, before we get started, will scientists be able to calibrate their instruments with the results of your glute training? Always, always. <laughs> okay. All, right. All you're gonna do is give it a little poke as long as you know, as long as you have permission. So. All right. Okay. All right. So let's get okay. All kidding aside, uh, so let's review why is uh, the optimization of your glute function so important? Yeah, Marty. this. Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, go ahead. either one of us can jump in here, but it's really there's so many important muscles in the body. But when you really look at the importance of the glutes in fitness, a lot of people are looking at it from a cosmetic standpoint. But when we talk about the true function of it, it is so integral in stability, posture, performance, injury prevention. So it is a critical muscle to make sure that is really truly functioning properly. It's It can be underactive on a lot of people due to the propensity of having tight hip flexors and sometimes not even knowing how to train the glutes properly, which we covered some of that last week. And then this week, we're really going to talk about how to make sure you're targeting the glutes because people put a lot of time, energy, and effort into glute training, but they're really not maybe maximizing, I guess, no pun intended, the outcome of what they are doing in the gym. So we want to just make sure we dive into that. But the glutes are really you know, the powerhouse muscle for everybody. There is so important in everything we do. And that's why we wanted to have, come back with part two for this. Yeah, absolutely. And before we get going, uh, just touch on it very briefly. Uh, 
you mentioned three, a couple of functions of the glutes. Can you talk about how, uh, very briefly, how this is this works as part of the stabilization complex of the SI sure. joint? Sure. So, Wendy and I both can jump in. So I'll start, and then we'll throw it over here to Wendy. So the glute really is, you know, a very important muscle in your pelvis, right? It's part of the lumbopelvic hip complex. So again, we have the glute max, glute medius, glute minimus, and we're not going to dive that that deep into all the anatomy. But when you really look at what the glute complex does is it should be helping to put your pelvis in ideal posture, neutral spine. If you have an underactive glute, it's very easy to have an anterior tilt. And even if you have an underactive glute, it's very easy to go into a posterior tilt if the adductor magnus is kicking in too much. And I, I've always said this when we do our live workshops, it's going to be hard for me to emulate this now. But if anyone ever came in and has an overactive glute max for sure, let me know. I'd love to see that person. Like I've never seen someone walk in, you know, where their glute is so overactive that they're walking in, in this, you know, extension position. So it's just a muscle that almost goes dormant on so many people, especially as we get older, maybe stop playing sports and moving around and things like that. But it has huge, huge implications into lower extremity injury prevention, as well as, um, stabilizing in effect the lumbar spine. So yes, we could get into how it would affect the SI joint, you know, also sciatic and all these other common injuries we see. But the key thing is we really want the glute to do its job and a lot of other things start to clean up after that. Yes, thanks. And Wendy, can you tell us, just talk to us about uh, the glutes function in performance. I know people sure. think about the deadlift or the kettlebell swing, but uh, how am I going to get my uh, 60 meter time back? <laughs> how does the glute help me do that? Well, I mean, you got to think too. I mean, what is the function? If we actually go to the next slide, Marty and I actually provided you with an example of like what the glute, <clears throat> especially glute max does. So if we can go ahead and, and move that over. So we'll just go ahead and go one more slide. Um, because I want, I want everyone to be able to see like the importance. I mean, as you can see right here, the glute max, I mean, it, it is, it's the, it's a huge muscle of, of your butt, really. It's the one that, that layers out. I mean, you've got your glute minimus and, and medius as well, but I mean, it's going to accelerate your hip extension. And so you got hip extension, you've got abduction where your leg goes out as well as external rotation. That's all the things that you need when, like you said, when you're running, when you're walking, I mean, for ideal gait patterns, you need everything to function correctly. And as Marty just said, that will help maintain um, stabilizing the lumbopelvic hip complex, but also trying to keep a neutral spine. So therefore we have all optimal, optimal link tension relationships, everything's firing accordingly. And then we're moving the way that we were supposed to move. And so if we have everything ideally lined up, we're going to end up having, you know, maximal development, especially in the glutes. And as Marty just said, I mean, if you have a low back round or you even have a low back arch, you know, most of the time your glutes are not firing the way that they were supposed to fire, even with both of those compensations. And so we're going to dig a little bit deeper in specific exercises that are going to help minimize um, or really maximize trying to keep ideal uh, positioning of the lumbopelvic hip complex and how to really kind of, you don't want to say target a muscle, but really try to maximize the activation based on exactly what it does concentrically throughout movement. Perfect. And one of the things for those of you who are out there watching, one of the ways you can really see the, the beauty of the glute function is just watch, just watch a track and, track and field athlete come out of the blocks 
right when they come out of the blocks and then get into that dry phase, you can see that beautiful triple extension. Like I'm just geeking out thinking about that right now. I'm going to have to go watch uh, all of the uh, heats of old hundred meter relays. But if you want to, if you want to watch that, that's one of the ways you can see the glute in action. So thanks for that, Marty and Wendy. Now let's backtrack a little bit and uh, talk about the progressions that we're going to use to optimize our glute performance. Yeah, so I mean, like with every exercise, we wanted to go through and truly talk about, you know, um, you know, progressions and regressions, because oftentimes we, you know, get so excited about trying, we know that the glutes are underactive and we really want to try to, to activate them the way that they were, or they're supposed to work. But, you know, you also want to think that it is a process. And so, you know, if you think of the exercise progression, when you're thinking about the glutes, again, think of the neural continuum, even we go from two to one, you know, two legs to one leg. And so there's really no difference here specifically for the glutes. So our order of exercise progression will be to do a squat and then a step up, because again, you're going from two feet. Now you're putting, you know, you're actually uh, stepping up on top of something where you're going to maximize whatever leg is on, let's say the step, you're going to have to use that mainly to get you up onto, uh, onto the step. And then you're going into a lunge as well, you know, would follow and end with a single leg squat. And so, so again, you always want to think about progressions and how to regress something. Again, if someone complains about having knee pain or they're feeling it in their lower back when they're doing a lunge, you know, you want to look at it as a trainer. Well, did you try to do a step up with them first or even possibly, you know, are you really working on proper dorsiflexion as well as proper, um, you know, uh, movement in the hip before you really start to, to, to hone in on some of these. And, and again, we're going to go through specific exercises from start to beginning. How can you start someone to really try to target the glutes and get them to a power level, um, you know, safely, obviously. Okay, great. Thank you. So now let's, let's jump ahead and talk about some of the common compensations that we'll see when the glute is not doing what it's supposed to do. And mm -hmm. We have this exercise here that you've, you've chosen, and I've seen this. This is uh, this is worse. Like the representation of this exercise and how people do it incorrectly is like that "Blinded by the Light" song. <laughs> no one, everyone, kinda has the lyrics in their head, but they always mess it up. This exercise is just like that. So, talk us through some of those compensations and uh, what we see and how we're going to correct that. Well, I can start. And then, Marty, if you want to talk about the, the cramping and everything to go with that, um, you know, biomechanically, again, one of the most common compensations, unfortunately, we see because of the desk jockeys or people that are constantly running is overactivity, obviously, in the hip flexors. And so when you're doing an assessment and you notice that um, someone has an anterior pelvic tilt and again, all that means is that the hips are shifted forward. And if you think about that, then you're going to think about what are the muscles that are overactive when you have that um, low back arch, if you will. And, you know, as we've talked about multiple times, it is the hip flexors, it's the lats, and it's the erector spinae. Those are the overactive muscles. But the underactive muscles, like for on the other spectrum of that, is the glute max and the hamstrings, as well as, you know, obviously the core musculature. And so... So t keeping that in mind and knowing that someone who has an anterior pelvic tilt has an overactive erector spinae, which means that their lower back is actually kind of crunched together. And that's why they feel low back discomfort, because, again, the compression that's you know, um, happening at the lumbar or at the lumbar spine. 
that can increase compensations. And so Marty found this picture. I thought it was fantastic because this this lady, as you know, you're looking at this um, great exercise for the glute max, but look at the compensations that are happening. And Marty, do you want to go ahead and take it from there? Yes, certainly. So, you know, now sometimes when you see compensations, don't, you know, think that the person can't be cued out of it. Sometimes they just need a simple cue and then they can fix it. They just don't know what they're doing. You know, they're just trying to get as much range of motion as possible. They don't understand, you know, what the exercise is truly supposed to be. However, now if we, I take a step back, we have our normal movement assessments, of course, that we always go through, but every single set of every single rep is a continuous movement assessment. So sometimes things will start out well and then it'll break down and that tells you that they need to be reminded or maybe fatigue is setting in, et cetera. Or again, it's just something that they're not familiar with what to do yet. So you're always going to be able to see what's going on and whether I do my normal overhead squat or if I see somebody do something in this, I can still tell if the hip flexors are overactive or et cetera, et cetera. So with this, when we look at this exercise and we're going to get into this exercise in a little more detail, this is just kind of a placeholder. You know, we got to know how much range of motion the hip has and how much range of motion the glute should have. So we will come back to that on this exercise. But when you see the bad compensation, remember, if we go back to movement patterns, because we're training movement patterns, not necessarily muscles, that your body will try to accomplish a task and find the path of least resistance. So if I'm trying to extend my hip or activate my glutes, and if they're not firing properly, or the client doesn't know how to engage their glutes properly, you might use other muscles which is that synergistic dominance. And the two most common for glute exercise are going to be your hamstring because they will help extend the hip, but they can also flex the knee. And then also your lumbar erector spinae. So when someone's doing a bridge or any glute exercise, if they start to feel a cramping in their hamstring, that's your sign of your hamstring saying, hey, I'm not supposed to be doing this much work, but I'm trying. And that's a key indication that the glute is not firing and when I say not firing, firing efficiently enough, of course, it'll be firing or the exercise is just too challenging. And now other muscles have to work harder. And that's another sign that maybe you need to regress it. And then sometimes people, if you do a bridge exercise, you can ask them where they feel and they're like, yeah, I don't feel my glutes, but I feel my low back. Well, that's telling you. And again, that doesn't mean an injury. That just means that's the muscles working that they're not having that proper firing sequence. So these are the things that we're going to talk about for each exercise as we go forward. And this will be one of the exercises, but you know, you're going to see some very common pattern patterning when someone's doing it wrong, or they're going to have certain feelings. And that's a great, you know, way to know if they're executing the exercise properly. Thanks, uh, Dr. Miller. I'm going to need you to clarify something for our uh, friends listening to us out there. And no, this is a this is a very important point, and I think you touched on it briefly. So, when you say, uh, and I know that you don't mean this, but uh, just for the understanding of our listeners, uh, when you say it's not firing, we know that if it's not firing, that means it's flaccid. That means nothing's going on there. But uh, would you, when you when you say that, do you are you suggesting that the glute is just late to the party? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so when, when I first learned this, I think we thought muscles are like light switches, either on mm -hmm. or off. And that's not truly the case. Muscles are more like dimmer switches, right? So there's going to be percentages of workload per muscle, per movement pattern, which is the prime mover versus the stabilizer, synergists, etc. So we're, when the muscle's not working, let's finish that sentence and then we can always abbreviate it 
now that we're on the common understanding is it's not working to the level it should be as the prime mover in that. So whether it's supposed to be doing 85% of the work, 90% of the work, mm -hmm. it's not generally ever supposed to do a hundred percent of the work, but when you start to feel the cramping or these other muscles kick in and you see an altered joint movement that shows you that the main prime mover is not doing its job efficiently. It's recruiting other muscles to assist. But a lot of times with that, you get altered joint action because those muscles do other things simultaneously, like the hamstring flexes the knee and things like that. So it's on a percentage, it's on a scale. So we're trying to dial the dimmer switch to the highest possible activation possible. So that way it's executing the majority of the workload efficiently and effectively. And the other muscles are there to assist. Correct. Yeah, we want to make sure that it is doing what it's supposed to do at the onset at the onset of the joint movement. And also, uh, this is the beauty of having training within the phases. You wanna have the endurance to sustain that work for whatever that act, the duration of whatever activity you're doing. Um, so now let's, uh, and Wendy, do you have anything to add? No, I think you guys nailed it. So. <laughs> um, time. We got something right. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, perfect. I'm just going to sit back and hang out. So, <laughs> um, No, but it does lead us to to one of the, um, I guess I should say one of my favorite exercises, especially, um, you know, in the very beginning, working with people would be the floor bridge. And um, again, there are progressions. Uh, you know, we didn't put another slide because, again, a floor bridge is just a regression for a hip thrust that's super weighted done on a stable surface and to maximize glutes when you're ready for that. But if you don't have the right activation and recruitment, as, we, as you guys said so well on the slide before, then there's going to be a ton of compensations. And, you know, again, there are some progressions to a, a bridge. You're going to start someone on the floor. You know, ideally, position-wise, you want to make sure, again, they're maintaining the five kinetic chain checkpoints. So, you know, you want their feet pointed straight ahead. You want to make sure when they come up that they're at a level position. So they're, they're drawing in, they're squeezing their glutes, they're relaxing their chin. Um, and at that point, you're going to ask your clients where you feel it. And this is one thing that you'll say is, if you say to your client, do you feel this in your glutes? They're going to say, I absolutely do. And 90% of the time, they're not even sure what you're talking about, but they want to please you. So if you ask them, do you feel it there? They're going to say yes. But if you say, hey, point to me, you know, point and show me where you feel it, then you're going to see, are they truly utilizing the glutes? Or as you guys just said, are they using more hamstring or low back? Like, where are they truly feeling it? Because again, if they feel it in their hamstrings, a lot of times as a cue out of that is if you tell them to bring their heels a little bit closer to their glutes, like, or towards their, their, um, their, their butt, basically, a lot of times that takes the hamstrings out of it. Or if they're feeling it so much in their quad and they feel a pull in their knee, then their feet are too close to their glutes and they need to walk out just a little bit. Because again, you want to have them in proper positioning in order to truly execute this, this exercise correctly. And again, you're going to think, that what are the progressions and what are the regressions? Again, regression is, is actually, um, as you see, that's the guy on the top. And then from there, you're going to do, again, two, two legs up or on the ground and they're lifting up and then they come down. And then you could do two legs up and then kick a leg out and then slowly bring it down. Or you can alternate legs or you can do two up, 
and then just lift a leg up and bring it down with one leg or one up and one down. The thing about it is people often jump. Okay, you know what? We're going from the floor. We're immediately to progress it, go from doing it single leg lifting. And then all of a sudden they get that cramping or their, their hamstring is for sure going to take over because their glutes aren't prepared for that type of progression at that, at that moment. So again, you know, as something as simple as a floor bridge, you know, this is something that you, again, you want to think about progressions and regressions. And of course you can put their head and shoulders on a ball and get better range of motion. Once you know that they have the positioning, they can maintain neutral alignment of their spine. And then, as, as I just said in the very beginning, you can then move this patterning up to something loaded with a bar or whatever it is that you want to use to do the, the actual hip thrust that we're seeing out there that is, is a fantastic exercise if done correctly. Okay, perfect. Now, uh, in one of your bullets there, you have, uh, or a couple of your bullets, you have the, uh, the heels under the knee and then feet flat, just for our viewers out there in uh, image B, it looks like the uh, the model is on the heel, actually driving through the heel. Do we kind of want that foot like we're in the mid stance of our gait? So I'll jump in here because this is, and, and I always would love to hear Wendy's feedback. I always start with my feet flat. And again, you guys have heard me joke around and say, if I ever get that group of they told me, I don't know who they are, but they they collectively have a lot of rumors going throughout the fitness industry. Yeah. I don't understand, technically speaking, the drive through the heel to activate your glutes. I've not made the neuromuscular connection. And what happens to me a lot of times if I teach someone to drive through the heel, now I'm focusing on the heel where I tell them to squeeze, like I always, I joke, say, Pretend you got the winning lottery ticket and you're hiding it from somebody. I want them focused on the muscle. I want them working. That I know is going to connect their brain to their glutes. And I know we've heard before with squats and leg presses, drive through the heel. I just, in my opinion, I haven't figured out why that is so important than focusing on the main muscle we're looking at. So I want my foot flat on the ground. Like what you're talking about, Prentice, is if I was running, jumping, doing all those things, focus on the muscle that is supposed to be doing the work. Now, Wendy and I talked about this. You will see some people put them their feet in a dorsiflex position. I don't mind that if I know the person knows how to maintain neutral and activate their glutes. And now I can shift their focus to something else because now we're getting some anterior tib work simultaneously. The old expression, I like to say that accidental exercise. But I don't do that too quick because if their glutes aren't going to activate right and they go up on their heels, I've seen people almost create an isometric leg curl and now they're firing their hamstring. So I'm very cautious on the foot position because one, again, I want them focused on the muscle that's working, which is the glute. That's why I keep the foot flat. Mm -hmm. Then when I know they have that, I will let them put their toes up if I want to work some isometric anterior tib work, but they have to show me that if I put their focus on their foot, now they're not going to dig their heels into the ground. They're still going to be firing their glutes. And then same with the alternating leg kick with the leg that's in the air, absolutely put them in dorsiflexion, get some more anterior tib work while you're doing your bridge. And again, we always want to keep the leg at pelvis level. We don't want them going to flexion. So I know I threw a lot in there, but that's what we do. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Uh, when, uh, before I, before I uh, let you get, give your feedback, Wendy, I remember they told me they told me about 20 years ago that maybe this is due to uh, the heel strike phase of gait. 
is just reflexively, just reflexively when you strike your heel before you get to mid stance that that glute activates. But uh, again, like you said, that could very well turn this technique into a leg curl, a supine leg curl. And we don't necessarily want to do that. And Wendy, what are your thoughts about the foot position? I'm, I'm right there with Marty. I actually have everyone do it with their, their feet flat and very, very seldomly would I ever lift the toes. And a lot of times when I say that is, again, this is more of a beginner exercise. And even if you mm -hmm. start to add some progressions to that, if somebody comes to me very often, another common compensation is foot external rotation. And so if I have their foot in the air and you know, their short head of the bicep fem or something is overactive, which again is a very common muscle that's overactive. It can actually, when their foot is up, because they're now focusing so much on their glutes, which is what we want them to do, their foot in the air starts to turn out. So now I'm trying to tell them to cue their toe inward to try to make it straight and then start to focus on the glutes. And I think it's just a lot of feedback in the brain that somebody that's new to this, this particular exercise done correctly will have a hard time struggling with. Again, not saying later on you can't do that if that's what you want to do. But again, when the foot is externally rotated, we know the anterior tib also may not be firing the way it should be. And then we're trying to get two muscles that are underactive to start working the right way. And it's just a lot for somebody that's new. So I say foot flat. Foot flat. I think we're all, I concur. So uh, next, let's talk about, let's talk about the kickback and uh, some useful cues to help our uh, coaches online uh, perform this properly. Well, again, you know, you want to maintain the five kinetic chain checkpoints. And then, you know, you're going to hear Marty and I say that pretty much on every slide, because when this exercise is, is exercises, because there's two, there's the donkey kick, and then there's also one done on the machine. That's just the rear kickbacks. What we see oftentimes are that these exercises are not done correctly. And if they are done correctly, they're fantastic for the glute because they're doing exactly what the glute does. So therefore, we're trying to, to get it to fire um, the way that it was intended to fire. However, um, if somebody is lacking proper core strength and their glutes are not ready for this, especially when you're in a prone position, it's, you're asking a lot of this muscle as well as maintaining proper alignment in order to get everything to fire correctly. So one of the common compensations that we see is a huge low back arch. Um, you know, uh, obviously with the neck too, they're having to maintain proper neck alignment, especially in a face down position and, or they're trying to kick up so high that, you know, they're, they're really doing more hamstring. Like it, it, again, even though their, their, their foot on the, on the donkey kick may be in air, they're still bringing their knee too close or their foot too close to their glutes. So then they start feeling cramping in their hamstring because again, they're not really focused on the hip movement. They're really focused on just lifting up their leg utilizing, you know, more of a leg curl movement, if you will. So they're bending the knee more than they're actually moving the hip into extension. Yeah. And then with this one too, everything that's happening is behind them. So now they don't get any feedback visually. So that makes form and technique even more challenging. And if they have good range of motion of their hip, especially in extension, 10 to 15 degrees. So when you start seeing people go into 45, 50 degrees, it's not coming from the glute and hip extension. It's coming from everywhere else other than the muscle that you're trying to do. And then if you think about if it's loaded and now you're tipping into an anterior tilt, imagine the force that the lumbar spine has to take as you're throwing back 70, 80, 90 pounds maybe. 10 to 15 degrees is all the range of motion you have if you have ideal hip 
flexion extensibility, which not most people, you know, most people are not going to have that. So not saying never to do it, just understand, maybe limit that range of motion, really focus on their core stability. And after 15 degrees, if they have that, stop the exercise there. And now you got, you know, a, a great outcome for the glutes. Perfect. Yeah. Speaking of compensation and understanding range of motion, when I was a young 20 something martial artist practicing a lot of sidekicks, uh, when my ego dominated probably some of the stability in my body, uh, kicked with way too much power, with way too much volume. Uh, yeah. I would do kicks with this position, like a hooking kick or a sidekick, but have tremendous back pain. And it wasn't until I, I learned how to do this for myself that that was always a problem. So that is good. So now let's move into lateral band walking. And this is another one that uh, looks like uh, if you see it done in the gym properly, it's a beautiful thing. If it's not done properly, it looks like a 90s dance. Um, so talk us through uh, best practices and uh, setup. Yeah, so so as you can see, um, the lady that's in the blue tank top, I mean, you see her beginning stance and then you see her execute it and her form looks great. She's lined up, her feet are straight, she's got good positioning of her torso and that's actually how you wanna execute it. And again, she would end up bringing her right leg in a little bit, not all the way together, so always leaving tension in the band and making sure, and we've talked about this on multiple webinars, making sure there's no compensation. So like the teapot that they're leading with their torso and then their leg follows. Their torso and leg that's moving should be, they should move together and then the trail leg should come in. Also making sure that there's no knee valgus or anything going on, on when you're pulling against the band. So maintaining, again, proper alignment, starting with smaller steps to begin with, with a lighter band to make sure that you're teaching the right positioning. And then it's fantastic. It's a fantastic, this is one of my favorite, favorite exercises to start with when it's done correctly. Um, as you can see in the middle picture, this is a guy that is doing the same thing, but his right foot is externally rotated. Even though his positioning looks good, that right external rotation is not ideal. And so therefore he's gonna start not really focusing so much on the glute medius, he's gonna start getting some piriformis in there, which again, that's a muscle that's commonly overactive that when it's overactive can compress on the sciatic nerve and end up causing low back pain as well. So the guy on all the way to the right, He's a disaster. His form is not good. And so unfortunately, this is common what you see when you're really not sure what, what you should be looking for. So we wanted to provide a good or a great and a good and then a not so good picture so you guys could get the visualization. Right. So therefore, when you're doing this, um, again, you know what to look for and you know how to cue them out of it um, correctly. Yeah, that is. And then, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Marty. And actually, what I was going to say, when I teach this, I don't even let them walk repetitively. This is just the way I like to teach it is what I see a lot of uh, compensation is everything Wendy said. But as they go to step right, they're so focused on their right leg, their left leg collapses in and they're not, again, focused on that. If in theory, as I'm pulling on that band, that leg is being the trail leg is being pulled into adduction. So you have to put outward pressure in a sense to offset that adduction load. So the way I like to teach it is, of course, demonstrate and let them see it, is I have them step right, but I say, okay, I want you to step right, but also as you step right, 
put some pressure into the band with your left leg as well, because that would should keep it in the right position. But if I only have them focus stepping right, a lot of times the trail leg is just getting beat up and they're only focused on what's going on in the right. So in a way I'll have them step, hold for three to five seconds, step back, step, hold, because I'm trying to teach them to put pressure into both bands and keep that pressure while they stabilize their spine, not drop into the anterior tilt. All of those things that Wendy was saying, awesome exercise, but a lot going on if you just start flying right through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you, if you don't, uh, you know, I like Marty's way of doing it, but often too, like where, where I work, um, there's also mirrors. And so I show them, mm -hmm. like I'm having them look at the mirror, I'm, I'm doing it with them. Um, so they can see now, now look, your knee's doing this, my knee's doing that. And so try to mimic that because again, some people again are very, very visual learners and I'm a very visual learner. So I tried to teach as I would like to be taught too. Um, so, um, so something to keep in mind, again, let them see what they're doing because you could say, Oh, you're doing this, you're doing this. And they're like, Oh no, I'm not. And, and they are, but they don't know they are. And so, um, you know, just look what, look, at the area around you when you're teaching it and and try to provide the best feedback that you can that you know that that they're going to actually be able to understand what you're saying absolutely and if you want to give them really good feedback for those of you who are watching i i teach in a i used to teach in a studio that had zero mirrors oh. you know, the philosophy being and I think Marty, you brought that point up a little earlier. Some people have everything going on behind them, so they don't have that they don't have that kinesthetic awareness of what their hips are doing without their mirror. And you know, heaven forbid they get caught in the forest and need to use those glutes. Can't okay. see them. They're gonna get stuck in the mud, get stuck in a tar pit. But uh, for you, for those of you out there, it is absolutely important to give your students feedback. Um, use your smartphone, use your mm -hmm. smartphone. So they're still looking at themselves, perform the exercise. And, and if you are allowed to do so, you can use your, you can use your bands to cue them out of those difficult uh, positions. Mm -hmm. So now let's move on to the sideline hip abduction, abduction. Mm-hmm. So I personally love this exercise. Um, and a lot of times people are like, oh my gosh, you know, it's like the old Jane Fonda workout, just do your leg lifts and call it a day. Um, however, when this is done correctly, it is very, very challenging because, um, you know, you can have, have the client in the same position. Again, we're really focusing a lot on the glute medius. Um, foot positioning is important because oftentimes, again, as Marty said, the path, path of least resistance what the individual or client would want to do on the leg that's in the air. Oftentimes they want to turn their toe up towards the ceiling versus keeping their, their foot parallel to the ground. So that's an easy compensation that you're going to, you're going to see very often, very common, but you want to make sure obviously in order to really target these muscles that you're doing it correctly. And, and think about range of motion again, you know, you only have about 45 degrees of abduction. So therefore you don't want to see how high they can go because if so, you're going to start pinching in the hip capsule, which is not comfortable, or there is going to be noticeable compensations. Um, another one that I like to do, and I couldn't find a picture of this. And again, I do this with my professional athletes that are coming out of the season is I will do this exact exercise on the top, but I put a big ball on the back of their heel and the ball goes on the wall and they have to push back into the ball and then lift. So they're actually getting glute activation and then still focusing on the glute meat as well because they're trying to teach them to work together 
And it's super challenging and people think that it wouldn't be, but if you have correct positioning and you're working within the given range of motion, it can be very, very challenging. Um, and then again, underneath it, again, is more of a regressed type exercise because again, even though the band is around the knee, the leg lever is actually less. So you're actually just moving kind of the, the you're focusing on, on working the glute med, but you're also really just shortening the lever. Um, but adding some resistance. So it is a regression. You could do just the movement without the band, then you could add the band, and then you could then extend the leg. Yeah, I think that uh, that technique that you were using there, pushing the ball against the wall is, mm -hmm. is key. And I love that. <laughs> because what I see when I, when I see people doing this exercise and what I find myself queuing out of or having or forces me to regress to the image below, is that people want to use their hip flexor dominant mm -hmm. and they want to let that they want to let that hip flex to get that range of motion so pushing that ball against the wall giving them feedback is is an excellent it's an excellent addition to this exercise mm -hmm. hmm. so now let's move forward and talk about the hinge <laughs> marty tell us about this Yes, the hinge is, is an awesome exercise progression we need to teach. A lot of times we focus on the squat. Squat's very important, but realistically, when you're doing things in everyday activities, you're going to be hinging more than you are going to be squatting. So it's crucial when I go to pick up a case of water or go, you know, if you had a little child around the house, you're hinging. So it is a fundamental movement pattern that we really do need to teach. But this was an amazing picture that we found. If you look at his head position through his hip position, his spine, he's in what looks really close to ideal position and neutral. So that, I mean, it's fabulous. And again, we teach exercise progressions and movements, not muscles. So if somebody can't do a plank, if somebody can't do a bridge, they're probably not ready for any version of extended hinges because now you're just doing a hinge, which is a combination of what's going at the hips with a moving plank is the way I would call it. So that's why we always start the way we do and build towards these. So I love the hinge. It can be done in all the different phases of training. You know, you can do stability, strength or power with the hinge and it's just crucial. So the key thing obviously is that head position is absolutely one of them because most people always want to look up. That's something that we want them to understand how to chuck that chin and they start to look towards the ground as they go into the hinge and then they start to look up and because that cervical spine is a key part of the core and to keep it in stable, that is your position right there. So we got to also watch the low back arch. Like I said, the watch the head position and you guys have heard the term before that pelvic ocular reflex that when you start to look up, your pelvis is going to tilt automatically. So that's why it's so important to keep the head in the right position. So it's, I think it's a, a more utilized exercise now than maybe, I don't, um, you know, maybe apprentice when you and I were in our bodybuilding days and we didn't see as many people hinging, but it's become more relevant with the kettlebell swings, et cetera. And we will talk about that, but I think it's crucial for what goes on at the hip, low back. And I, I absolutely love the hinges. Outstanding. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about the reflex? And when this is uh, when we get a little more advanced and we start lifting implements. And one thing that I've had to work on with uh, some of my clients, students, is that when they pick an object up, instead of coming up into that nice neutral position, they really want to keep their eyes focused on that object. 
as if they don't trust their, their grip strength. So what are some of the things that both of you do to uh, help cue uh, your clients out of that position? Oh, well, I was just going to say for me, you know, to, to dig a little bit deeper on the pelvic ocular reflex, um, when Marty says that you're going to compensate and that your hips are going to shift, I mean, when you think about this, like you're, you're trying to stay balanced. And so your eyes kind of dictate kind of where the pelvis will go. So as you look up, your hips will want to go into an anterior pelvic tilt. And as we discussed, that is a common compensation. But think about this. If that that hip goes into an anterior tilt, that's a low back arch. And now think about, I'm trying to have you lift a, a heavy load. And again, this can be done in all five phases. So whether you're starting with no load or you're lifting an extreme heavy amount and you look up and you start to add that compression even before you move to the lumbar spine, that's gonna lead to a lot of issues and decrease the glute, um, the glute max, which is what you're trying, that's your prime mover when you're doing this, your glutes as well as your hamstrings. And so, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why you really want to think about, you know, your eye position and your and your neck position throughout. Again, five kinetic chain checkpoints, super, super important. But unfortunately, back in the day, coaches would tell you, you know, like, look up when you squat, look up when you do this, like, see what you're doing, like, watch yourself in the mirror. Um, and that's where a lot of some of these bad cues came into the mix. And but if you look at biomechanics and you look at the way that the body works, as well as, you know, not just muscularly, but neurologically, it kind of starts to make sense of why we're so, uh, you know, so specific, like, please keep your chin back, keep, you know, think about head positioning. But to your point, if somebody's looking down and lifting up, if they stay looking down, then again, the opposite can still happen as well. And then they start to flex their spine too much. So instead of utilizing the glutes again, what they're doing is now they're starting to add more compression in that in that flexed position of the spine. So therefore, they're going to end up lifting more with their lower back than they are their glutes. And so... So those are just two reasons why it's just super important. Always think about the five kinetic chain checkpoints. And it's just, if you have them in that, in that positioning, you're going to be able to execute this well. And, and that's where, you know, we, why we love the model. That's why we are so keen on the five kinetic chain checkpoints, because this is not the first exercise someone should walk in day one in the gym. If we're, if we had our choice, by the time they've earned the right to get here, as we like to say, they've done hundreds or maybe thousands of reps or seconds in the right ideal posture, whether it's the plank, you're gonna fix their chin, whether it's cobras, whether it's a squat to row, whether it's a step up. So now they understand what that is. So by the time we get somebody to a hinge, this is maybe just a minor tweak to remind them, but their body has been in that position countless times and we've corrected all the imbalances that would have restricted them to get in that. So now it's time to move into this type of exercise. So it shouldn't be hard. So if your client is having issues, have you done all the work on the front end with the planks, the bridges, the, you know, the Cobras, all the things that should have taught them where their head and neck need to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the, yeah, that's a good point. Starting you want it when you're doing any of these movements, you want to start from the basics and there are a lot of things going on there. You can teach the plank, teach the plank ideal form when they're doing each of their other progressions, exercise progressions, but there's always that time when you give them uh, just potentially the same exercise and sometimes your students will say, I don't get it. I don't get what that is, even though it's the same, it's the same thing. We just, we're just doing it in a, we're just exactly. doing it in a different position. So 
Yeah, it's just you, you have to pay attention to all facets of that movement, starting from the ground, making sure the muscles are doing what they're supposed to do, even technically. How do you pick something up and maintain the position regardless of the exercise that you're doing? There's a lot of things to do when you're uh, coaching your clients. Okay, now let's talk about my favorite. <laughs> we put, we this put this in there for you. For you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll shut up now for a while. Go ahead. So, and why, why I'm not going to ask this? any questions. I'm going to let you go. <laughs> Marty, my... you want to take it? <laughs> that way he can, he can nope, pick nope. on you. Think if you went to a desert island, all you take is one kettlebell. That's my theory. So with a plank, again, this is now moving towards that power phase. So the reason that they should be able to do this is because they've done all the precursors. This should not be new to them. It's just getting them to understand how to do it at, at a higher speed and what their end range of motion should be, how to control it, how to, you know, set up and all those things. So it is nothing more than a dynamic plank because I'm a big fan and I'll, I'd love to hear Prentice's opinion of the traditional kettlebell swing where I stop at about shoulder height, maybe just above. I'm personally not saying never. I don't do the all the way up. I think they're called the American swing because again, now to decelerate, I'm in an extended position on my rotator cuff, the weights above my head, easy for me to shoot my neck forward. I don't, you know, those muscles in my rotator cuff that have to stabilize that momentum and that weight, not ideal for me, not saying never, but I like the standard swing where we stop at about chest level, chin level. I'm, I feel I'm in a stronger position to stop that weight quickly. But as I stop the weight, I should be in a plank. I shouldn't have my head shoot forward. I shouldn't be winging at my scapula. I shouldn't be rounding at my shoulders. It should be just that dynamic plank. There's, of course, if you want to use kettlebells, I highly recommend taking a kettlebell certification. And Prentice, you could give us your best opinions on that. I see people jump in and use the tool and they don't really understand how to teach it and hence a lot of the problems. But again, you'll see a lot of people do the swing and their head is up when they're in the bottom position. So that's why we showed that other picture because that gentleman was doing that hinge perfectly. That could have been a swing right there as well. And this was a pretty good picture to the right about the right height pretty good. Feet are turned out a little bit. So there's some little bit of things that we could tweak. But overall, I think we've all seen a good swing versus a not so good swing. So they're great for a lot of things, metabolically, dynamic core stabilization, power, you know, production through the lower body, great for glutes, great for grip strength. So a lot of great effects from it, but usually not done well. I would agree. Wendy, do you have any See, I anything bad? Yes. <laughs> I mean, again, you know, you want to think, I mean, if you're doing, you know, Olympic lifting and, you know, you're, you're used to throwing a bar up there and, you know, and you want to try it with a kettlebell again, you know, it's, it's going to be challenging because you're throwing just one up and you've got to be able to control it and make sure you know how to properly handle the kettlebell so it doesn't end up breaking your, your, your um, forearm if it, if it crunches you the wrong way because you didn't know how to hold it and you're not executing it well. Um, but, you know, again, you know, I think Marty kind of kind of said it. I think it's fantastic. Another hip thrust exercise that I think is is great if done correctly. Unfortunately, the common compensations that you see, again, feet turned out as well as low background or the looking up. So therefore, there's too much of an arch in their lower back. And if you know, one of the things to think about, too, is the assessment. If they don't have proper extensibility in their lat, 
and they're going up too high, then again, you are going to put them into an anterior pelvic tilt. So positioning, coaching, and then you as the trainer knowing that they can accelerate or, you know, go up and what range of motion is most ideal for that client will be extremely important for proper execution. But I think, again, it's a fantastic exercise if it's done correctly. Perfect. Yeah. And I could, I, I'm going to uh, be quiet because I can, I can definitely teach a two day workshop just on kettlebells. Um, so, and we don't have that kind of time today, but you, you both are absolutely right. And what I was getting at with my previous point is that when you're teaching any kind of movement, you, you absolutely start your client with the basics, but then you're overlapping skills. If a swing is done correctly, it, it's, not, it's a vertical jump. Your, your arm swing, you have a back swing very much like a jump. Uh, you're bringing your arms up to that uh, horizontal position. If you're thinking more of a horizontal jump, actually the bell does move on a combination of a horizontal and vertical plane. And you're in double extension. It's nothing different than a jump. If you've done all of your homework, building up through the phases, a swing should be no problem to acquire. And you can see on the third or the second picture, actually the third picture, all of those kinetic chain checkpoints are in alignment. There's some detail issues with the swing. Sometimes the balls are a little big. So when you see someone using double bells, that's probably just to get, well, and people who are experienced with them to get the bells to pass through without kneecapping yourself. And then to your point, Marty, on the American swing, the devil's in the details. So if you're kind of jerking the bell up, I want to throw my big meat hooks into the camera, but if you're jerking the bell up with your shoulders in internal rotation and you're letting your back arch to facilitate that movement, it's not, it's not very good. But if you're using a lighter bell, keeping your arms parallel with your kinetic chain checkpoints in line, you don't have that internal rotation in the shoulder, then it becomes a dynamic stretch. Becomes yeah, I like one arm if I'm going to go all the way up personally. For sure. I have more extensibility than for me, you know, because yeah. that's are not, it's not something I have ideal range in yet. So if I want to do something like that dynamically, I go with one arm because then I have less chance of compensating. So just again, the workaround. Perfect. Perfect. So like I said, I need to, I need to be quiet. We need to keep moving. Uh, so now let's talk about the, uh, the single leg squat and the pistol. Dun, dun, dun. So let's, uh, Wendy, tuck, take us through the single leg squat. What are we doing there and how do we perform it? Yeah. So, so again, remember in the beginning, you want to think about your progression. So at this point, if we are going to talk about the single leg squat, I know we kind of have these out of order, but you know, you want to make sure that they can execute a, a good squat. You want to make sure that they could do a proper step up and lunge. And if they know, and you know that they're ready to do a single leg squat touchdown or a single leg squat, I think they're fantastic exercises. I love this one with my clients because again, I want to see how are they doing? Um, Cause think about the stability that they must have in their ankle I'm also always making sure the kneecap is directly over the second and third toe. I want to make sure that they don't have too much of a forward lean. So therefore, again, I'm still trying to maintain proper alignment, um, looking for those parallel lines, even on one foot. I do not have the trail leg go back. Again, if the trail leg goes back during a single leg squat, it can throw the pelvis in a, in a different position instead of neutral. And I really want to focus on proper quad and glute activation, which are the prime movers of a squat. Um, Common compensations that you'll see is that, uh, again, their pelvis doesn't stay lined up. 
they do go into the forward lane. The knee shoots in over like an, uh, past more of their front big toe. So they'll go into to more ad, um, uh, adduction, so valgus. We want to make sure none of that happens. So you really want to make sure somebody can do that safely. And the only difference between a single leg squat and a single leg squat touchdown is that a single leg squat, you're teaching them the pattern and you're working on their range of motion because their hand may not be able to touch the ground. A single leg squat touchdown is when they have more ideal range of motion and their their hand or the weight or whatever you have in the in the floating hand which again, if I'm standing on my right foot, the weight would be in my left hand because I'm actually working in a contralateral way. Um, we, we train that way because we move that way. So that's another, another way to think about it. Um, I think it's fantastic. Now the pistol squat, yes or no? Here's the thing. If you have ideal range of motion in your ankles, your knees and your hips, and you can do it without compensating, it's not a bad exercise. The problem is, is most people are lacking so much dorsiflexion that they cannot do it without either falling back or without compensating and leaning over, which then is teaching the body improper movement mechanics, which is not going to actually execute it other than saying, hey, look at me, I can do this, but I'm not doing it well. And so, um, you know, you'll see a lot of rounding of the back in order to maintain, you know, again, they're trying to hold themselves over their leg and we don't want a rounded back. We want, again, think about the parallel lines. And, and just to reiterate, which I say almost every, every workshop, we look for parallel lines because if you have parallel lines in your squat or your step up, your lunge, whatever, you have ideal um, uh, alignment or degrees of, of motion. You're sharing kind of the load between the ankle, the knee, and the hip. So we're not putting excess pressure on a specific joint in order to execute a movement. Okay, perfect. I think that that's pretty clear discussion. Uh, pistol squats, for those of you who are interested, there may be video of me in the interweb somewhere <laughs> doing the pistol. I'm, I don't do them as much. I don't do them anymore, actually. Tony can do it. Like He's money. Actually, he's pretty good. I, on yeah. the other hand, cannot. <laughs> yeah. So there's an organization out there, just very short story, and they have something called the Beast Tamer Challenge. You may have heard of it. I know some of you who are listening today know what it is, but you press 48 kilo kettlebell. You can do the math on that. Uh, 48 kilo kettlebell, do a press, do a pull up and do a pistol. There's video of me somewhere doing that. <laughs> but, uh, I don't need to do it anymore. So let's talk about uh, lunges. Let's talk about the lunge and uh, proper setup and technique. So I'll jump in. So if we go back to those first progressions that Wendy went over, we learned to squat first, then we do a step up because you can control the height of the step up. Then you would do a lunge, then you do single leg. They're all triple flexion, triple extension. You do not teach them differently. It's just different base of support and different depth of the triple flexion to, you know, and then up to the extension. So it's always the same five connect chain checkpoints, always the same parallel lines with a little bit of a forward lean to match between the spine and the tibia for you know that proper length tension relationship that little stretch reflex to get the muscles to work properly so don't overthink the lunge when it's time to do it just know that they've squatted know that they've done a step up and that you've gotten to different levels height of a step for step up and no more than maybe 90 degrees because after that they're going to have to posteriorly ro rotate in their pelvis then it's time to do the lunge so you've got here make sure the knee is over the second third toe but you would have been doing that in the squat and the step up 
look for those parallel lines. Again, you're reiterating the same form and technique that they would have had on the other two exercises prior to earning the right to do this. And then in, when we say fully engaged glute at the top, you see a lot of people stop with their hip. I know you can't see me, but my hip is still flexed. We want people to come all the way up because we want that full hip extension. Don't stop with your hip in a semi-flex position because now you're not fully activating the glutes. You're gonna come all the way up. And I always tell people, give me that squeeze at the top. And then again, can be performed in all three planes and all five phases. So the lunge is a phenomenal exercise to get people through for sure. Absolutely. Wendy, do you have anything to add to our lunge technique? No, I mean, the big thing is, is if anybody complains about knee pain, again, look at their positioning because usually they feel knee pain in the lower leg or the back leg. And if that's the case, then their torso probably isn't leaned, meaning that there's not parallel lines and you're putting a lot of excess stress um, into the hip flexors when maybe that they don't actually have that extensibility there. So because of that, it starts pulling up onto the knee um, and then you're also going to possibly see a low back arch. So just remember if somebody is complaining about low or, you know, knee pain, and especially if it's in their back leg, really truly look at their lines because that just means they're compensating somewhere and you really want to, to cue them out of that. Perfect. Perfect. And for those of you who, uh, one, when I used to teach, I used to inject a little bit of humor into the class. When Marty says fully engage the glutes at the top, I used to tell my students, imagine that you're minting a coin when you stand up. And if you do not know how to mint a coin, go look that up and put that into your sessions right now. <laughs> so, and Wendy, let's uh, finish up with step ups. Yeah. And again, you know, we would tell you to go to legged squat and to a step up next. And the reason being, again, you're still focusing, as you can see in picture number one, she still is angled with torso as well as her shin on the top leg that's on top of the box at a parallel line. You're going to maintain proper positioning with knee over the second and third toe. And then as she comes up, she's fully going to squeeze her left glute. And then as you see her floating leg, you're going to have toe up into dorsiflexion. So therefore, we have hip flexion, knee flexion, and dorsiflexion. And again, we do triple flexion, triple extension. So therefore, we're mimicking our gait because as Marty always says, accidental exercise, you might as well train <laughs> for what you need in life. So therefore, that's one of the reasons we tell people to do the toe up when they're doing any kind of thing with a floating leg. Um, and again, these can be performed in all three planes of motion. They can be performed in all five phases. And, and so again, when you're thinking about five phases, don't be afraid to load these exercises up. You can add weight to any of them as long as there's no compensation that they have proper form throughout and that they can do it uh, without, uh, like I said, mainly without compensation, but uh, just make sure it's done correctly. Okay, thanks for that, Wendy. Now, one thing, and Marty, you touched on this earlier, uh, but let's talk about that box height. When we're talking about yeah. proper setup and form, can you just reiterate that point? Because it's so important. Yeah, I'm going to kind of go back. Like, this is like the piss squad. This is what I tend to see is there's cool things to say you accomplished, but we're going to look at was it biomechanically sound and safe? So, like, at some point, a pistol squat, you have to go into a posterior tilt. You have to. You know, no one has that much range of motion of their pelvis to, to stay in neutral. So same thing with the height of the box. Yeah, people are like, oh, I do these box jumps or box step ups. But once you get to where your knee and hip are level, you don't have much more range of motion if you have ideal hip extensibility before when you start to raise that foot up above the hip, 
you're going to have to posteriorly rotate. So the first thing that's going to come up and get you out of that is actually going to be your adductor magnus. Because the more you go into a posterior rotation, the glute is now lengthening and it's not in its ideal position. So then you get that adductor magnus to fire. It's going to work anyways. We just don't want to encourage it to work. So right around 90 degrees is the right height. Then from there, you can load it, you can go into other phases, or you can then go to the lunge because now they've cleared the progression of step-ups. Now just have them go do a lunge so they get a greater depth and you know more neuromuscular demand. Okay, so thanks for that. That's, uh, that's a great explanation. Uh, just be aware of your, your functional anatomy, your, your kinetic chain checkpoints when you're prescribing exercises to your clients and know what you're, know what you're trying to get out of it. Are you doing the circus trick or are you training? There's, there's a big difference. Uh, and Greg, just let me know that we have a few questions. So while we're waiting for those uh, questions to come through, uh, can we talk about your takeaways? Yeah, I can go first. So always, always, always assessments are key because again, you know, and, and there are so many great glute exercises out there. These are just some of the common ones that we see or that we see in the gym often done that maybe are done incorrectly. So we just wanted to kind of bring them to the forefront for you guys. But if there's an exercise that you love and you know that you can execute well and you know that you're using the glute as the prime mover, then then go for it. Because, you know, again, there are a ton of them out there. Um, always, always, always follow the OPT model, work on, on proper activation. So again, inhibit the muscles that are overactive, activate the ones that are, you know, um, you know, found to be lengthened, or, you know, that are not activating properly before you start doing some of these more advanced exercises. Um, if somebody comes in with an anterior pelvic tilt, meaning their, their hips aren't lined, and then you have them do a super heavy hip thrust, that's only going to lead to pain as well as, as improper movement. And there's really not going to be a lot of benefit for that client. However, if you progress them, you know, the right way with a bridge into different types of movements and you know that they have proper execution, then it's really unlimited on how, how you want to execute any of the glute exercises that we discussed today. Um, always five kinetic chain checkpoints. That's always going to be super, super important. And, um, and I, as I always say, you have to have fun with your clients, but, you know, use the model, superset when you need to superset, follow the acute variables and, um, and it's going to be, a, it'll always be a good session. Okay, I think we had a question up from Melanie. Um, can we have that question up again? Uh, okay, this is, uh, this is a question for both of you and this is from Melanie and thank you for joining us today, Melanie. Uh, she thinks that this is an impossible question. Uh, it's not, it's not, but what is the ideal number of reps to be able to do with two feet down with the bridge before progressing to one leg. Yep. I can jump in here. This is easy. We're gonna go right back to our acute variables. So let's not lose sight of the model. So with if you're gonna do one legged, we're gonna assume that's probably gonna be just in the stabilization phase. Very hard, not impossible to do one legged when you're starting to carry load. It's gonna be hard to keep your pelvis neutral. And if we can't keep our five connecting checkpoints in order, then we eliminate the exercise. So let's assume that this is for stability. 12 to 20 reps. So if somebody can do 12 to 20 reps with that 4-2-2 tempo and they can do it the entire time without having compensations, without having any of the cramping in their hamstring or low back, then you can consider 
progressing. We've gave you all the progressions where it would be two leg up, you know, and then you would, before you go all the way to one leg, we had all those little micro progressions in between. But once you get to 20 reps, it's time to make a progression. So 20 reps would be that high end number before you go to whatever is next and appropriate. Again, in my opinion, one leg is tough to do in the strength phase, just due to if you're loading it, it's hard to really keep the pelvis level. But I will do some one-legged power, uh, you know, single leg bridge where I'm just coming up quick as part of my dynamic movement. That I'll that I will do. So I don't know if Wendy, if you have anything to add there. No, I mean again, if you want to to work your way up to you know to that one leg, like what I would tell you to do is come up on two, lift a leg, and then slowly lower. Come up on two, lift a leg, slowly lower. And then when you know that 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 client has proper positioning of the spine, again, any type of compensation that means they can't handle it. So so really, there's not a number of reps. It's really just visually being able to look at the five kinetic chain checkpoints and can they execute them correctly. And as long as they can maintain proper form then you can you can move them up pretty quick throughout the the you know kind of this the the steps to get to the single leg but it's really up to the client and and how well their body responds to your training to get them to that point okay thank you now the next question comes from tunisia and i hope that i pronounced your name properly uh and also thank you for joining us today and uh the question is, do you recommend pistol squats using a plyo box or a bench to sit into as a regression? Do you want me to take this one, Wendy? Sure. I don't do pistol squats. And the reason being is all the clients that I've trained, we were focused on improving their human movement based on the five connect chain checkpoints. I didn't have anyone come into me that had to go do it for a level of competition or anything like that. If that was the case, then I'd work on increasing their ankle dorsiflexion even even more, making sure that they understand how to get into that deep position. And then maybe I might use some of those regressions you're talking about. But just due to the fact that I never had that type of client, I never taught pistol squats because I'm always trying to improve proper human movement by the five kinetic chain checkpoints. So that's how I made my decision on whether I would teach, you know, any of these exercises. So right. Wendy, if you have anything to add to that? Yeah. So, so again, you know, I think using a plyo box or a bench to sit um, as a regression when you're teaching someone how to do like a single leg squat, I think would be a fantastic way for people to kind of understand the depth that you're looking for, for ideal range of motion in a single leg squat. However, with the pistol squat, when you stick that leg out in front of you, a lot of people are, their hip flexors are super weak. Even if a muscle is overactive, remember that muscle is also weak and really trying to keep that leg straight out and then really focusing on on the proper squat motion and mechanics it's just very very difficult to do so even when we when we teach the single leg squat remember you want to keep that floating foot right beside the foot that's planted onto the ground so you can really maintain proper alignment of of the, the actual um spine and and the pelvis so so i think a single leg squat using a plyo box or a bench to teach I think is fantastic when it comes to pistol squats again you know there's trx that you can use if you really want to try to get there and and have something to hold on to to really try to work on proper alignment if that's your end goal and that's the exercise you want to be able to say you can do then i would use something like that suspension type trainer in order to help get you there um but but again what is the end goal why do you want to do a pistol squat and can you execute it correctly because you have good range of motion those are two questions that'll really be up to you as the trainer and the client. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I think uh, in this 
Final question comes from Portia. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us today. And uh, Portia wants to know, what is the proper foot position for squats that target glutes? Our toes forward with knees not tra uh, traveling past the toes. So we're going back to kinetic chain checkpoints. <laughs> And I think the question there, there might, if I'm wrong, please let us know, Portia. It, there might be some underlying uh, question here on: Do we let the feet turn out while we squat? So every squat should proper the, the proper target the glutes. That is the that is the purpose of a squat. It is a glute targeting exercise. So we're always going to say feet straight ahead, five connect chain checkpoints. Because as soon as I start to turn my feet out, yes, I might be able to get deeper because that clears up my ankle range of motion, but we you know, could go through all the different things that happen biomechanically where you're not working the glutes as much or they're in a weakened position and there's other structures, both muscularly and soft tissue and articularly the joints that have more pressure on them. So every squat should target the glutes. And we know from the ideal length tension relationship that we're gonna have our glutes in the best position when our feet are straight ahead. And then as Wendy mentioned earlier, if we have the parallel lines that match with our chin and our spine, they're both going to be pitched forward just a little bit. That is the best way, again, to distribute load during that squatting pattern, as well as put a little bit of a stretch on the glute. So that way you can use the glute to get yourself from that triple flexion to triple extension. And then the knee traveling maybe slightly over the toe, this, that, the other. If the feet are straight, you got those two parallel lines. You don't have to really get a tape measure out on how far the knee maybe migrates forward. It's really, are the feet straight and are there equal parallel lines between the chin and the spine? Mm -hmm. Outstanding. So uh, Marty, since we won't, we'll give you the last word, what are your uh, takeaways and then tell us how to find you. Now, I think the key thing about the takeaways is go back and watch both of these uh, round tables that we did because we just covered over two hours worth of glute training between the anatomy, you know, how to activate the muscles properly. And then just some of the stuff that goes on with the exercises. And we spent two hours on it because it is such an important part of the training to understand truly the anatomy, great questions that came in as well that about this, and then how to put together a good exercise progressions and programming because the glutes really are an essential part of proper human movement and then injury prevention, healthy aging, all of that. So just go back and watch everything a couple times because we put so much in there. And then to get a hold of me, marty.miller at nasm.org, and then Instagram there, dr.martymiller72. All right, thank you very much. And for those of you who haven't done so already, I'll throw my name in the hat so that these two, uh, these two smart coaches teachers, don't get overloaded. You can hit me up on the Instagram at Dr. P. Rhodes, at Dr. P. Rhodes. So um, thanks everyone for joining me today. Thanks, Greg, for uh, keeping it together. I apologize for going a little bit over, but this is important information. Thank you for everyone. Thank you to everyone who showed up today, and we will see you next time.